Welcome to Business Psychology Unplugged. Today, I have the honor and privilege of chatting with Jason Blackwell, who is the founder and principal consultant and executive coach at Hatwell Group Consulting. Jason, welcome. Hey, Ben, it's great to be with you. It's great to have you on. Now, I've got to say to those people listening, I've had the luxury of playing football with you, soccer, for those of you listening outside of the UK. And I learned a lot about your leadership skills on the football pitch. Those were some pretty good days, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they certainly were. A real mix of uh, personalities. If you had to do a deep dive into the world of leadership, choosing the Brooklyn Gunners would be a good way of looking at the world of leadership. We had people that didn't care. We had people that were crazy like me and you and football obsessed. People of different talents, just almost like the average workplace, I would say. You know, there's so many personalities, weren't there? And some people would show up and some people wouldn't show up. There was the same sort of core group of six or seven out of like, you know, 15 guys. It was the same core group of six or seven that would always show up. And I thought it's interesting because like one of the things that we talk about in leadership is the importance of showing up and like being reliable. And straight away, you can see some people were there for themselves and some people were there for the team. And some people, I guess, were just so overwhelmed with life that they couldn't commit. We'll get into the real world of leadership, but how do you lead a group of people who voluntarily are showing up for something versus paying somebody and someone who's completely devoted to the mission? Well, it did feel at times like we did have to pay some of the players to even turn up. We did have to give them free bits of equipment. We had to promise them a drink after the game, things like that. The reality is you've got to be with people that are self-motivated. And I think the reasons why people didn't show up were never soccer related. They enjoyed the game. They enjoyed being around a group of guys. So I don't think it was ever a case of they didn't want to come or turn up late for anything that any of us did, how we all got along. Actually, a pretty tight group of guys. And as you say, the core of us stayed together for many years. And uh, you and I are still friends today and with many of the team members, even though we all stopped playing probably four, in some cases, five years ago. It's the other factors. It's the other things that are going on that stop people turning up. So what you had to do, and you and I swapped the role of captain many times. I coached, managed the team one year. It was really talking to people and finding out what was going on outside of the world of soccer. Why were they coming late? What was stopping them doing it? And then you start to realize that people can't make the training session, which used to drive me and you crazy. You realize they've got two kids at home, maybe a wife who's coming in from work late. And once you can show that kind of empathy to their own situation, you can talk to them when they do turn up and also importantly, talk to the rest of the team. They're getting a bit frustrated that they're showing up every week, but somebody else isn't or not coming to training, but they're still getting picked for the team. So it's finding out from the individual what they've got going on in their own life and showing some empathy towards that. And then the second part is communicating to the rest of the team when people are grumbling and saying, hey, do you realize what John has going on at home? John's a fictional character, by the way, in case uh, John is listening from the football team. So it's both. It's understanding what an individual has going on and it's communicating that to everybody else. So there's a real understanding. That transitions very nicely, I think, into the world of leadership and how you need to operate as a top tier manager. Well, I think, you know, you tapped into a lot of different components there. One of the things you mentioned was empathy. And you also spoke about accountability. And 
being individually or you could even say internally accountable, being self-motivated and showing up because you're like, you just really, really want to be there. You don't want to let anyone down. It would be great if everyone was at that point. But I think a lot of people that I work with, and I'm sure you do too, because we both work in the leadership development space. There are managers out there saying they're not accountable. I have to hold them accountable because they're not accountable. What do I do to make someone who's not accountable become accountable? And I suppose what role does empathy? And I guess if you want to go into emotional intelligence, that's sort of in the same bracket. What does it take to make someone accountable? And is that the responsibility of managers? As you know, my background is I've been coaching for about 15 years now. But before I became an executive coach, really focused on leadership and communication skills here in the States, the accent is real. I am British, just like you. And I spent my formative years in the military. Now, everybody in my old unit is motivated. They're the best at what they do. It's a fantastic environment. But as you say, not everyone is motivated to turn up to work. It is a job for some people. Now, there's lots of advice out there around it. I'm sure there's hundreds of books on Amazon about how to get somebody who's clearly not motivated, motivated. I'm afraid I live in the real world. And the people I coach actually come to me with that question frequently. And I give them the same answer. You probably can't. There is a good percentage of people that you can waste 90% of your time trying to bring them up even to an average level of motivation, of engagement. The reality is you can't. So a lot of the people I work with in finance, top tier, high performing, extremely well paid, extremely smart. I say to them, that's not where you need to be wasting your time. So I'm a little bit more black and white on that answer. I think those in the middle group, then you can move up. But if you genuinely have people that don't want to be there, they're spreading it inside the workplace. I've given advice frequently that says, look, I know you want to try and try and drag them up but it isn't worth the effort. I think it's time for them to move on. That's my harsh answer. The way I look at it is, and I think this is in line with you, a lot of our work in some cases is in the middle with people that they haven't given up on and that there is some potential. Maybe there's something we need to unlock. I think there is a third group and that is people that are demotivated. So if you think about it, you've got your demotivated people, you've got your really motivated people, and then there's people in the middle. And I think some of those people in the middle a little bit of that empathy and a little bit of that understanding of like what's going on in your life, the time that managers actually spend getting to know the person, finding out that they're going through a divorce, they just had a newborn baby or like they've got some health issue or their father's just something's happened with COVID and they're in hospital. Those kind of relationships between leader and follower or in any cases, manager and employee, eventually, hopefully it will evolve into a leader follower relationship. But it takes a certain degree of respect and connectivity between the leader and the direct report employee or perhaps follower in order for them to really trust you and for them to really give you that kind of insight into their life as to what is slowing them down. So I just think sometimes people haven't necessarily got the same level of motivation as the most motivated people. But if we just got rid of those people and we only kept the highest motivated people, we would probably be churning through a lot of talent. So isn't there a trade-off to some extent with how much talent you've got coming in to the organization, how long it takes to train those people in terms of how quickly we can cut those people that are just not going to be excited to be here? Yeah, I want to make very clear. I'm not suggesting we go around chopping everyone, right? 
I promise you, I spend a lot of time talking to the people I'm coaching about delegation, about involvement and engagement and things like that. I'm really talking about that bottom percentage that you described so nicely. I would say for that middle group in particular, I kind of come at it from two different angles. The first thing is, why are they in that middle group? What's going on? And of course, there's tons of empathy there and you're asking about their personal life. I'll address that in a second. But the most simple question I ask the leader of the team when they're describing to me, I've got somebody who I can't quite work out. I think they enjoy working here, but sometimes I really struggle to get them to the level I want them to be at. And I say to them, when was the last time you ever sat down with that individual and said, what do you want? Where do you want to be in two years from now? And if they say to you, I'm just really happy what I'm doing. Okay, great. Now I know what that person's expectations are and I can plan out their future and not stress about promotion. Not everybody wants to get promoted. But if they say to you, no one's ever asked me before, I'd love to be a vice president in the next two years. Then you can start having a conversation about what they need to get to that level. And that might be the key to unlocking their drive. Different personalities mean that they come forward with that information. Sometimes you have to go there and drag it out of them. And it's amazing afterwards. They'll come up to me in a coaching session a couple of weeks later. So I had that conversation with Emma. And she said to me, she wants X, Y, Z. I didn't even know that. That's why you had that disconnect. So that's a bit of a 30,000 foot answer. But it's not unusual to hear that there's just a simple disconnect communication between the leader and somebody in that middle band. And then the second thing you said is understanding what they've got going on in their own personal life. For me, that falls completely under the bucket of trust. You only get trust with people when they have a feeling that you have their back. They have a sense that you have their best interests at heart. And I can't tell you how many group coaching sessions I've run at top tier banks or asset managers And I've got a group of 20 newly promoted managing directors and we're talking about trust and how well you know your teams. And they'll say to me, yeah, I've had individuals in my team for two years, eight years. I know my team really well. I always ask the same question. Okay, I want all of you right now to think of somebody in your team that you know really, really well. Have their face, have their name in your mind. You give them 20 seconds and they, they think of it. And then I'll say to the 20 of them, when's their birthday? And there might be two of them that know the birthday. And the two of them that know the birthday is usually because it's been in the last week or two. But it's remarkable how little we know about the people we are actually leading. Never mind that they've got a sick parent. Never mind that they've got three kids at home at the moment. We don't even know the simple things about, do they have a boyfriend, girlfriend, a partner? How long have they been married? Are they planning a wedding? What have you done this weekend? So for me, your questions are exactly right. The empathy, I don't know what's going on, but a lot of the time, we don't even know the simple stuff. And that all comes under that amazing bucket that I like to call trust. Got to know your people. You've got to know them well. You've got to know what they do, what they like to do, what they've got going on. So you're exactly right in that regard. When I get out of management leadership training mode and I just kind of go into Ben mode and I think about the people in my life that I've spent time with and the people that I trust versus the people that I don't trust, more often than not, the people I don't trust are just the people that seem like surface level. They're either just selling you, selling to you, or they're just kind of directing you, or they just don't have time for you. 
I'm not saying I would necessarily distrust someone at a surface level, but I wouldn't trust someone. I think there is a difference between trust and distrust. I don't really know if it's a trust on one end and distrust on the other or mistrust on the other, or whether it's really like certain degrees of trust, whether you break into one or two measures. There are certain people that you just wow, I could warm to them immediately. Like yeah. there was a guy in State College, right? I mean, we're based out of State College, PA. There's a guy called Mike the Mailman. And he was the mailman for the university up here. And this guy's like a local folk hero, right? Like everyone in town knows him. I'm actually friends with his daughter and she's a friend of Becca's. Anyway, you meet this guy and I'm telling you, within 20 seconds, you trust him. And you could say that's charisma, but I would say more than that, it's just heart. It's like, it's heart. Would he be a great manager? I don't know, because at the end of the day, when you're so friendly and so warm, there's always a risk of how seriously people take you and in terms of getting stuff done. But I think from a trust perspective, managers have to cross that line and try and have a human connection with Mm -hmm. someone. If they're spending all of their energy on themselves, on their career, on their targets, on the numbers, and maybe, I don't know, maybe they're just overwhelmed. What do you think is stopping these people from finding out all of those details? Well, first of all, I work in a very particular field, which is the world of finance. So I work at the biggest investment banks, asset managers, private equity firms, hedge funds, etc. Now, by the very nature of the people I work with, they are focused on numbers. Let's call it money. That's their driver. A lot of the time, that's how they are deemed to be successful, profit loss. But by their very nature, they are data people. That's where their focus goes. And quite often, that's the biggest issue. And what are we talking about here? Personality. And as you just described, Mike, the mailman, his personality is a lot more people focused. That's what he enjoys doing. I'm sure he doesn't get a thrill from putting a letter through a door. His thrill is from meeting the person behind the door, you and everybody else in town. And it's clear when you met him immediately, that's probably what you got from him. He didn't say, oh, I've got a piece of mail from New York City. I think it's from the IRS. He said, how are you, Ben? What's going on? And he showed interest in you. So that is charisma. But really, underneath all of it, it's personality. He's obviously a people person. We all know people like that. A lot of the time, the people I'm coaching are from the other side of the spectrum. They are dealing in data, numbers. They're very diligent people. They like going into the weeds. So therefore, they see that as the driver and not the people. So I'm always trying to pull that out of them. And that's where the difficulty comes. I sometimes describe it as like an elastic band. When you stretch that elastic band, it gets quite painful. It's quite hard to really stretch a big fat rubber band out. Well, that's what they need to do to leave that world of data and diligence and go into the people side. If you ask Mike to do a spreadsheet, he might find that difficult. So our world, both of us as coaches, is quickly to try and assess personality. And I guess that's why you've got a good handle on Mike. I do the same thing, but I'm working with the other side of the coin here. I've got very data-heavy people. It's interesting when we both work with these people that suddenly find themselves with these responsibilities. And because they haven't spent a lot of time helping other people in their team on their way up, by the time they're actually running that team, People are looking at them and thinking, what am I going to get from this person? They've never really helped me. They've never really taken an interest in me. They've just kind of kept themselves to themselves. Anyone who steps into that role is going to have to really try and get to know their people, try and help their people and sort of do all the things that we expect them to do, even when they're not having direct reports, you know, being good team members, right? So that kind of like raises the question of where do people learn this stuff? 
early on in life. And, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, I know that we've spoken a bit about your former military experience, but I'd like to go back a little bit further than that, Jason. Did you experience any leadership in your family growing up? Or where was the first real leader that made a difference to you, helped you in your life, and obviously had credibility in your eyes? Was that within your family? Was that from a teacher at school? Where was the first person? Obviously, informally, this is happening. But yeah, where was it for you? And how did that affect your decisions to enter into leadership? Strangely enough, I was talking about this with somebody at the weekend. They were talking about their high school in America and how they had a teacher that they remember who really inspired them and they're still kind of in touch with them now. And the reason that conversation came about was I just finished watching, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, there's a new documentary on NBC Sports about tackling racism in the UK in football or soccer specifically. And it's hosted by an ex-really good footballer called Micah Richards. And I was watching it, and he goes back to his high school in Manchester. And He's from teacher, City, right? He played, he played for Man City. That's right. He played for Manchester City. And he goes back, and his PE teacher is still there. And he's just a really, really cool guy. And Micah Richards was talking about how that teacher pulled him out, could see he had talent, and invested so much time. And you could almost see Micah Richards tearing up and saying, if this individual who didn't know me actually had no, you know, there's nothing in it for him, but he saw something in me and invested that time. And now look at, you know, ended up playing for England and Manchester City and winning the Premier League. And Micah Richards was almost tearing up when he talked about it. And when he said all that about this teacher who's standing right there, who looks like a very normal teacher, I hope that doesn't sound rude, but he's just a normal guy. And he turned to Micah Richards in the camera and said, well, that's what you do, isn't it? I'm a teacher. That's what I'm supposed to do. You're supposed to make people improve themselves and get to the next level. So anyway, I had that conversation at the weekend because the sad part is I didn't have anyone like that. (laughs) I don't remember a single teacher at any of my schools who invested time in me. Now, I'm always about accountability, by the way. It's one of my key buzzwords when I'm coaching somebody. So I will tell you that I probably need to take the blame on that. But I'd love to have a little bit of a great story to tell you about. I had this teacher who saw leadership in me when I was 14 years old and said, you should join the military. The reality is it was just something I always wanted to do, flying around in helicopters and doing stuff like that. It always appealed to me and I always had a sense of adventure. But interestingly enough, underneath all that, without having a mentor in my teenage years, until really I joined the military, to be honest, in all those years, I myself was always very self-motivated about leadership. It was always something I was fascinated by. I loved reading books about explorers, people like Ranulph Fiennes, people that would go off and do solo yacht journeys around the world. That always really inspired me. And I remember when I was at school, if there was something to organize, a kick around at lunchtime, to jumpers for goalposts, as we used to say, I kind of remember I was always the cocky kid who, you take your jumper off and I'll I'll set the field up. So I was always that individual, but I don't remember having a particular mentor about it. I experienced some of that ordering around on the football pitch. And I should say organizing. I think it was more like, I can't remember the quote exactly, but something like keep the line or something when you were telling the defense to not fall into the offside trap problem. But there's a couple of things in what you said that I really want to pick on. Number one, the fact that we're all getting so, I don't know, the hair goes up on the back of my neck a little bit when we're talking about Micah Richards coach, because it's such a great story. And it's so obvious that is the purpose of teachers. And yet we don't have many of them. We don't have 
every teacher giving us that level of energy, enthusiasm, support and encouragement. Yes, okay, there was a very talented athlete in his school and that PE teacher identified it. I'm guessing in many different subjects, there are people that obviously have a lot of talent and you would hope that the teachers are helping them escalate to another level. But really, the fact that it's such an unusual and emotionally charged story, I think really speaks to how little leadership there really is in our education growing up. And in management today, I think leadership is, it's scarce. And there's a reason why you and I are in this field beyond our own passion for the subject and helping people develop. There's a need for leadership because it just doesn't exist everywhere. They should be a dime a dozen, those teachers helping people. I was lucky enough to have one teacher. His name was Will Griffiths and he was my form tutor. He didn't teach me for any subjects, but he saw that I was struggling in math one year. And he took out his own lunch break for about six months to help me get through the exam. And that, to me, that was unbelievable. But I didn't learn about leadership growing up. I learned about the opposite of leadership growing up. This is something that my family probably wouldn't want to listen to. But I learned about the opposite, which I would call bossy management. So without going too far into it, there's a syndrome called petty tyrant syndrome, which, as it sounds, is basically an adult acting like a brat. And so I had a father who basically for 10, 15 years, I worked underneath that supervision of petty tyrant syndrome. And so that really told me about what leadership wasn't like. And I think sometimes we can learn by seeing what we don't want to do and what isn't going to work. And hopefully that motivates us to sort of go on our own little mission. So perhaps there was some of those other experiences that you saw that sort of propelled you to be different. No, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, a lot of my drive came from what I saw as, as disappointment. I've always been the kind of person who, if I'm told something, you're not good at this, you'll never make it, then, then that kind of spurs me on. And I remember in England, we have a, what's called six form, which is the two years when high school finishes before university, which I didn't go to. I went to the Naval College instead. But I remember when I went to a six form college studying what we call A levels. I'm not sure what the equivalent is over here, but I was studying politics. I always had a passion for politics. Even now, I try and read a lot of books on the subject. History and politics has always been my background interest. And I did an A-level in politics. And I remember two weeks in, the teacher in the class actually saying to me, you're never going to pass. Now, she might have been right. I probably was playing up in the classroom. I look back on that and I think to myself, what would possess a teacher to tell a student that? She should have been, in my view, trying to work out why I was playing up. Maybe she should have had some accountability. I have my own level of accountability and I should have been a better student. What ended up happening was three months later, I decided that college wasn't for me. I left, which is why I went to the Naval College a year later than I probably should. I had to go somewhere else and do my A-levels. And I chose a few more technical subjects when I re-enrolled. What I also did was enroll in A-level night school. And as well as doing my normal course, I went and passed A-level politics in one year instead of two years in night school. And I got it the same day as the kids who stayed behind in my former sixth form. And I remember going to the results day. Do you remember A-level results day? You go and get this little tear-off piece of paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember getting my... Followed by a bunch of beers. That's right. Well, I remember getting my result because I was in night school. There were people that were 50 years old. I was 17 at the time. And I remember getting my result. The other six form was about a mile away. And I remember walking all the way over there with my little result slip. And I walked in because all the results came out of the same day. So I knew it was open. And I walked in and there she was. And she said, oh, 
what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've just got uh, something to show you. And she said, what's that? And I remember showing her my A-level pass. And I remember saying to her, put that in your trophy cabinet (laughs) (laughs) and just walked (laughs) off. And for me, with a bit of arrogance, I guess, but I really, really felt that I wanted to show her that you shouldn't give up on people that easy. I'm not stupid. I'll pass the course. And I sometimes regret doing it. But I also have regrets about that first couple of months. And that's the kind of, I would have loved that story to be happier where she grabbed hold of me because I was struggling and transformed it. But it didn't really happen. And then years later, when I was in the Navy, I wasn't the fittest individual. I was always at the back of runs. But I wanted to go and get my Green Beret. And I can't tell you how many people told me, no chance. Yeah, why are you wasting your time? You'll never get through that course. We started with, I think it was something like 131 people started the training. We finished with 32. And for me, that was a huge achievement. But I remember waking up in certain mornings going, what the hell am I doing here? Looking myself in the mirror. And what motivated me wasn't the beret at the end. It was all the people who said, nah, you won't pass. So that's always been like a motivation for me. If you want me to play football again, Ben, just tell me I'm no good and I'll get back on your <laughs> I think we have that element in common that when someone tells us we can't do something, we are sort of like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, uh, I think I've probably spent a lot of my education based on just trying to prove people wrong, which who knows needed that. I think you do. I remember you telling me you're going off to get a PhD and I said, no chance. I mean, I know who you are. No (laughs) chance you'll ever get a PhD. No, I don't believe that. Actually, I've got to thank you because I remember when I was doing my PhD, you were the only person in the football team that seemed interested. I really appreciated that support, but it does kind of make you wonder, does that tactic ever work? Is it ever a tactic? At what point is it just someone being mean and just doesn't believe in us, right? Versus are there people that would use that as a tactic to motivate certain individuals? They absolutely would. But you've got to know the individual. And as you're talking about mentors, I will tell you that when I joined the military, probably about 18 months to two years in, I met a guy who did exactly that and is still a friend today. In fact, I was texting him at the weekend. He left the Navy after a 35-year career. I mean, I left in 2004. He was in until eight, nine years ago. He was 20 years older than me. And I met Pete. His name's Pete Dawson. Just an absolute remarkable character. When we talk about charisma and leadership charisma, he had it in bucket loads. Now, he was on the same commando unit I joined probably 20 years before me in the mid-80s. So as soon as I met him, I knew that. So straight away, he had my respect. But he just always went that extra mile to ask you, how are you doing? Are you still thinking of going to the unit in the future? He always just had that, it's hard to describe that inherent interest in you. Roll on six years later, so I've known him for a good period of time now, and I was due to start commando training. And I went up to the base where he was now stationed. And he said, let's go for a run. I was 25 years old, had been training for this course for the last two, three months, thought I was fit as hell. And here's this guy who, I guess, Pete at that time, I was 25, so Pete would have been mid to late 30s. Still a fit guy, though. You wouldn't mess with him. He said, let's go for a run. And straight away, my, my morale dipped. I was like, yeah, this could be a, bit of a nightmare. <laughs> so we go off on this run. He doesn't tell me how far we're going. We pass the four and a half mile point and we hit this hill. It's not huge, not a big hill probably a couple of minutes to run up it, but it is like near vertical. And he says, why don't you go around the bottom and I'll meet you around the other side. I just want to get a bit of an extra workout in. He sets off up this hill. I still remember it now. And my brain instinctively went, oh, perfect. I'm going to get a bit of a breather. So he shoots up this hill and I start going around the bottom. And I think it took me less than 10 seconds to go, what the hell am I doing? So I chased after him. We got to the top. 
And I remember him just looking at me and it wasn't a wink. It wasn't anything he said. It was just a look, almost like a little nod. And we, we cracked on and we got back and I was blowing, by the way, we got to the top. He was hardly out of breath and I was like doubled over blowing. And we cracked on, did a pretty good run, probably seven, eight miles or something. We got back to the base and he said, how'd you find it? I said, hard work. That was a good pace. And he said, you're going to be okay. And it was all about that, literally that 30, 45 second on that hill. He said, that's the moment I knew that your mental state was ready to go and push yourself harder than you needed to. And because and you didn't give up. That's right. And, and that's an example of somebody who just pushes you like that. But he didn't do it in an overt way. It wasn't get up that hill. He just wanted to right. see if I'd follow him. So he's the best example of it. Just an amazing character. Always been so supportive to me throughout my career after I joined the unit and then in the years since. So when you're asking about mentors, he is really one that really leaps out and certainly right up there. But he's also got a pretty good score, a pretty cool story there about how you motivate somebody. I'd like to change direction a little bit right now. What is it like to coach somebody who's really a tyrant and that nobody really wants to work for? You know, I often work with people. We all do things like 360s and you talk to the head of HR and it's like, oh, he's a tyrant. Absolute tyrant. And I've worked with two in the past 12 months. The reason I was brought in is just absolute conflict with everybody. And luckily enough, we transferred both of them. Real transformation. It was, it was fantastic engagements. But when you get into it, why are you behaving like this? Well, when I joined banking, my boss did that to me. So that's yeah. what I know. And I was like, okay, but look at the relationship you've got going on. Nobody likes working with you. Is that really what you want to be known for? Really? Is that what they're saying? What, what do you think they're saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> they're all wrong. <laughs> yeah, they're all wrong. But this is, this is what I know, right? And you know, Jason, I've got to ask you about this. But how responsible should the leadership of the organization they work for be in setting a culture that would catch that really early? I mean, like, how did this guy get to the level he got to? And I don't know how many years he was in leadership before this 360 identified the problems. But you just kind of wonder, how could he get away with it for as long as he did? And is there any responsibility in terms of the culture of that organization in breeding that and also in catching it, I suppose? There absolutely is. And I think it's changing in the industry. But the reality is, if somebody is behaving in a very direct, forceful way, I think in today's world, it does get highlighted, which is exactly why I was brought in. But until three, four years ago, to answer your question, they didn't really care because he was amazing at what he did. His revenue numbers were through the sky. And if he leaves because you don't think he's good for your culture, guess what? He's just going to go to the competitor and they'll mm. take him with open arms. He'll bring all his clients, his revenue numbers. So right. the answer is yes, they should be. But we also, again, live in the real world where people do need to make a profit. And if you have somebody who's that good at revenue, then they'll keep them around and they'll just accept the turnover in the team. That's just the reality of the business I operate in. I suppose that it starts with results. Uh, then if the results on their own are not enough because of all the problems, then it goes to development. And then if it doesn't work after development, we have to make a conscious decision. Do we keep them and live with it or do we let them go? I think a lot of companies don't even go into the development stage. They just kind of turn a blind eye and they'll just kind of keep, they're just happy getting the results. And then there are others that are shocked and will someone go. But I often feel like those people would never even exist unless they thought they could get away with that. 
I agree. And the only way they would think about getting away with that is if they're seeing it happening in other places or they've seen it with their manager into the example that you just gave. So I guess the variable here of interest is the whole 360. Was this the first 360 this person had had? And I suppose it'd be interesting to hear your point of view on 360s and how successful they are. I'll be honest, they're not that successful for me. And this individual, the coaching did not come about because of a 360. He would never let a 360 happen. How dare you think you need a 360 on me? You know, I don't need to hear from them. They just do what they're told. It was more the complaints got to a stage where they were probably worried about some of the behavior leaking out, becoming a reputational hit. So when I go in, of course, the first question when I met the individual was, are you going to do a 360 on me? And I said, would you like me to? I don't want to say yes or no. No, I don't. <laughs> I know what they're going to say about me. I go, okay, what, what, would they, what would they say about you? Here comes the list. So sometimes when I'm working with an individual, there isn't actually a 360 needed. Now with him, it was more of an anecdotal 360. I wanted to hear, I'm only getting one perspective when I talk to him. So I want to get a couple more. Boss loves him. Boss loves him. Gets everything done on time. Very efficient. Of course you love him. Never turns work down. Never says no to me. Gets things done on time. Numbers are amazing. Love him. Best guy I've ever had working for me. He's worked for me now for 10 years. Love him to death. Go below, absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So it wasn't like I needed to do like any kind of tick the box, rate him from one to five. It was all quite anecdotal. So that was an individual situation. And that's not unusual of how I do 360s. I don't like doing data-driven ones. A scale of one to 10, your team say you're a six in whatever it might be. I like to get real world. I like to find out the common themes by talking to people, very much like we're doing today. So that's how I approach 360. But the reality is I've been coaching for so long now, and I hope it doesn't come across with a level of arrogance, but I've been coaching for so long now. I can sit down with an individual, even hear their perspective, and you know what's going on behind the scenes, right? You hear those themes from certain people. You know what they're like. You've been brought in by HR. I don't get brought in by HR because life is good and rainbows are outside. Right? There's something going on. So part of my job, I always think, is relaxing the individual We'll go back to that word trust again between me and him or her and making sure they feel comfortable to open up about their real world. And I think that for me is one of the key skill points of an executive coach. Data is there to be used. I do use Hogan. I do use DISC. I think it's extremely useful to uncover your personality and, and get those themes going. But you can't beat having a conversation with somebody and drawing it out of them. And that's how I like to operate. I wanted to ask you a little bit. I know you mentioned earlier on, you mentioned that you had an interest in emotional intelligence. It's definitely a very popular space right now. What would you say to a manager who, you know, I guess if we lean on the disc for a second, was low in the stabilizer dimension of the disc, right? Really low, probably doesn't care very much about people. It's probably very focused on what they need to do. Where does emotional intelligence fit with someone who is low in stabilizer? And I guess, can it be learned? It 100% can be learned. And I'm evident of that because I can tell you, I did an EQ test myself six years ago. And it was like, not record low, but it was probably almost as low as you could get. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean I don't care about people. You know me and we play football together and I love people and telling stories and being around them. But I was like, what is going on here? So I did a, a real deep dive into the subject and it's made me not only such a better coach, 
but it enables me now to talk to people and just start to understand a bit more about what's been going on. And the reality is, I think from my military days, when I look at how I used to operate, I was about the task. We were given a job to do, go and do it. And for me, it was always about getting the job done. And if that upset somebody on my team, if I met them, you're going to be going home from a job in the Middle East, for example, and we've been away from home for six weeks. You've got to stay behind for another week. I've got a birthday party. So my kid. Okay, unlucky. So I think my low EQ kind of comes from that world. It was all about getting the job done. I do wish I could go back in time and talk to myself and shake myself and go, you'd actually be a lot more effective if you could get a handle on this. So for me, it's an absolute game changer. When I'm coaching with people, if it's an executive coaching engagement, six months with a manager, it is nearly always one of the first things that I now discuss. I want to know what frustrates the individual, what drives them crazy, what are their triggers, if you like. So that self-awareness for me is the absolute foundation of everything. There is no point talking about any aspect of leadership or communications unless the individual improves their self-awareness first. You've got to have that. Then, of course, we dive into the second realm. Okay, so now I know what, excuse my French, but pisses me off, right? What's my trigger? And sometimes I'll say, when was the last time you got an email and responded within five seconds? And they'll go, well, it's half an hour ago and did it. What was the consequence? Well, I got an email back within five seconds, but they copied their manager on it. And I go, what did you do? Well, then I sent it back and I copied my manager. And before you know it, we've got this RE colon, RE colon, RE colon. And context is missing and everything is escalating. Well, one of my lines is the next time that happens, realize when you get an email from that individual, is it about a topic or the individual? First of all, what is it that's causing it? It's to take a big gulp of what I like to call Jason's air. Take a big gulp of Jason's air. Don't, under any circumstances, start tapping on that keyboard. So now, of course, we've moved into the second realm, which is self-management. So we're now realizing what's causing us to get anxious or frustrated or angry. And now we're managing it slightly better. And that simple example of an email always works with people in the world I operate. And where does that lead us? Well, we move into the world of empathy. Why did that individual send the email? They probably didn't send it to frustrate you. They didn't send it because they knew it would wind you up and that they get a thrill from that. So Mm -hmm. there's the empathy. And if suddenly, instead of sending the email, we pick up the phone or we send a slightly different toned email with a bit of empathy in there, the relationship gets better. So now we have that beautiful organic journey of emotional intelligence. And just by using that one example of one email, it absolutely shows that it not only works, but it can be learned. And I work with people all the time who develop EQ, usually pretty quickly, because I think if you explain it the right way, it's an eye-opener. And what I always tell people in a, a chemistry meet, which is what we quite often do at the beginning of a coaching assignment, they're meeting various coaches and they want to make sure they get along with you, is I tell people, if you come on this journey with me, and you really want to get better, you've got to be coachable. That's the first thing I tell people. I don't want to work with somebody that's not coachable. You're not interested. Don't waste my time or your time. But one of the first things I'll tell them is if you go on this journey, I can promise you one thing. This is going to be like a weight off your shoulders because they always end up taking it home with them as well, by the way. This is not just nine to five in the office. This is what's happening at home in the evening, driving to work. It's happening all around. So going through EQ, and I've got so many great examples of how it works, but uh, that for me is a really interesting journey and it's a game changer for people in their careers. 
It's really interesting what you're talking about, especially the reaction that the email created with this person, the frustration, the fact that you're teaching him to take a a big Jason breath of air, Jason air, like that just shows you that that's part of the therapy of, hey, stop, breathe, and maybe ask yourself really what is the intention of that person? That's the empathy part that you're describing is brilliant because You're really helping them handle their own stress level by taking a pause and breathing. And you're also sort of changing the way they are reviewing the whole situation because instead of saying that person's just trying to upset me and I am upset, instead it's like you're not making a conclusion. That's a theory of yours. Maybe they are trying to upset you, but maybe they're not. And so if they're not, what would be the best way of finding out why they sent that? And whether they're okay. And I think that's really the art, I think, in emotional intelligence is understanding how you get upset and also realizing that the majority of things people do that make you upset were not intentional. And if we just took the time to actually find out what's going on on their end, maybe pick up the phone, we'll probably find there's actually an explanation on the other side that is really more about an issue rather than necessarily about you. It's not a personal attack. They're upset about an issue and not necessarily you. And so it's kind of like you've got to understand yourself, but you've also sort of be a bit more of an investigator and a counselor to the other person before you make a conclusion. Yeah. And when you real world it, you work with people on it and they come to you a week or two weeks later and they give you a real world example of what they've done. It's so rewarding when you get it. And they're almost not maybe embarrassed, but just What was I thinking? I remember working with this managing director a couple of years ago, and I was asking a group, I had a big group, and I was asking them, think about what frustrates you. Is it an individual? And this guy straight away, he was getting angry, even thinking about this individual. And he was getting so frustrated with his daily work and what he was doing, his production levels or whatever it was. He was simply taking all his frustrations out on a daily basis with the IT person who happened to sit a few desks down. If something was going wrong with his work and then one small thing went wrong with his technology, whatever it was, his mouse stopped working. Uh, I don't know, his sales force wasn't working quite right. The drop-down tab wasn't working. He said to me he would get up, go over and absolutely download on this IT fella. And I said, how did the IT guy take it? He said he never responded. So he's all right. He's a good guy. You know, I go, okay. <laughs> so I said, okay, I want you all to, to work on your EQ in the coming days. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about what I've been doing. Because you know, for the first time, he was thinking about the poor guy. He said, he must think I'm a right idiot. But he's never said to me, don't do that. So I'm thinking, surely he's okay. Okay, let's change it. He came back a week later for the next module. This was in person pre-COVID. He came back for the next module. He came in, can I have a chat with you? I said, sure. I said, how's it going? He said, it's been a really, really remarkable week. I've really worked on... When I'm angry, even if it's IT related, I don't go over. I want to. And you talked about that gulp of Jason's air. Well, I, I'm not going over and yelling at him. It's been, a, it's been a week or so. Anyway, he came up to me yesterday before we all left the office. He said, I'll use the name John. His name's not John. But he said, hi, John, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Why are you asking? You haven't yelled at me this week. I'm just making sure you're okay. And then he said to him, have you taken up yoga? <laughs> he said, I feel better. Our relationship is better. And I actually feel like a far better human being because I'm not taking out all my anger on this poor IT guy. By the way, none of it was his fault. It was just an easy target. And that's what tends to happen. 
because the IT guys are quiet, probably like a CS temperament in disk, just quietly exactly. busy doing their own thing. They don't want to like exactly. cause too much drama. So I think what it would be really nice, actually, in the last few minutes that we have, there's probably some people listening that are thinking, how do I get into this, right? How do I become an executive coach? How do I become a leadership coach? And I'll preface this question a little bit by saying when I was in my grad program and I've said I wanted to be an executive coach, I wanted to be in leadership. And I remember a couple of leadership coaches saying to me, you need to grow some gray hair, probably a beard, and you need to have 10 years of experience. They even said to me, you should go get your doctorate. Now, obviously, being in this field, I've seen that a small percentage of people in our profession have doctorates. But what do you think? What would you say to people that maybe they're in HR, maybe they're a manager somewhere, maybe they're a grad student in a program without any experience. What would you say to those people about entering the space? Well, the first thing I'd say is for me, and again, this might just be personality-based, I find it an incredibly rewarding experience. When I work with anyone and I see them develop as an individual, get better at what they do, that's where I get my post from. And that was the same back in my military days. I loved doing all the crazy stuff, but actually I love seeing somebody get promoted and leave the unit and go on to better things. So underneath everything, you've got to really get a buzz from developing people, working with people, and just enjoy being around people. So the first thing is just work out if it's something you enjoy. How do you get into it? I'd love to give you a magical piece of advice. I don't think there is one. And that's one of the cool things about executive coaches. A manager can go to any number of different providers, whether they're from academia, whether they have life experience. I mean, mine is military. And now, of course, I've got that 15 years of experience with the results that's proven. So people call me now and say, we know you worked with him or her. So can you work with these individuals? So I'm fortunate now that I'm in that position. But I think if I was entering the space and I did have to enter the space once upon a time, just like you did. It's just working out what kind of people you want to work with. An executive coach can't work with everybody. My niche is people in financial services. And that goes back to what you said about my direct style. I get hired because I'm not a fluff person. I don't come in and my job is not to make you feel good. I'm coming in because something is not quite right. I'm going to give you action. I'm going to be very direct. And you've got to be ready for that. And I tell people up front, I'm not coming in here to improve your morale. Your morale will improve because you'll get better at your job down the line. But in the early days, it's going to pinch a little bit. So my advice would be, think about what kind of people you enjoy working with. Is it the creative space? Is it the educational space? Consulting, finance. So don't go into it and go, I want to be an executive coach and I want to coach everyone. Have you got any particular industry expertise, for example? So I probably wouldn't do very well working with people in things like advertising or the creative world. They would like fire me within a week. My advice would be work out what your niche is, what industry do you want to specialize in? And then also inside that, what is your expertise in coaching? Is it emotional intelligence? Is it leadership? Is it any other different aspect? Is it efficiency? People have different expertises. So my advice would be find out your industry or space that you want to work in and really hone in on what you want to get good at and study like hell. You've got to have the academia behind you. Um, and that doesn't mean, of course, just a PhD, although I think that gives you incredible insight into the space. It means 
going on Amazon and reading every book you can on that particular space. It means Googling blogs and just getting all the different information so you can parlay that to your clients. Yeah, I think leadership is a discipline. And so you can learn a tremendous amount from reading and you need to also learn a tremendous amount from doing. Yeah. And so, yeah, having the interest in helping people and developing people is key to the, the actual job itself. And getting some leadership experience is, is really important as well. And I think people probably can volunteer in all sorts of different organizations and just be incredible followers. Because if they're really, really good followers, someone is eventually going to ask them to lead yeah. that group, whether it is a, a sports team or a religious group or a charity of some kind. The more participation, eventually people are going to give you responsibilities and then you're going to end up finding yourself in a leadership position. So I think wherever you can get the experience alongside the academic interest and obviously the opportunity, which doesn't come for everybody, but you are a perfect fit for finance in that regard. I think I'm sure they are looking for someone who's a high drive person or that can at least hold their own with another high drive person, because inevitably that's going to be part of your industry. So Jason, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm so glad that you gave me two hours of your life, although this will be most likely 40 minutes. Thank you so much. And I'd love to have you back on the, this podcast at some point in the future. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And whenever you need it, I'm here for you. Thank you, Jason. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, or just tell your friends about it. Until next time, this is Business Psychology Unplugged.